and uh, and then working at kind of putting a little bit of perspective uh, to that. Jesse and Aaron are not here this morning. They are together with, and maybe one of the reasons why it feels like the pews are a little emptier this morning, they are at uh, snow camp together with the rest of the junior youth leadership and uh, all the junior youth. And so, of course, we trust that God is blessing them there. Um, Jesse also used the story of the shepherds at the time of Jesus' birth. He encouraged us to believe that even in the middle of incompleteness and pain, and brokenness, God invites our worship. Uh, in fact, there was something that I thought that he said, well, many things maybe, but this one in particular that I remember, and I thought it was it was profound, and I want to just quickly repeat it this morning, uh, because it struck me. Um, he talked about how throughout eternity we are going to be in heaven, and we are going to be worshiping God perfectly. And, uh, and that'll be fantastic, and that'll be amazing, and, and we'll know exactly how to do it, <coughs> and we'll do it well, and we'll do it right, and we'll feel good while we're doing it. Uh, but then he said something that I thought was very significant. He said, um, but it's, but it's this short little window, while we live here on earth, while we walk, are walking through difficulty and darkness, and struggle, and hurt, and pain, it is only this little window that we have to worship God out of, or in, hurt, and pain, and suffering, and turmoil, and darkness. Uh, That opportunity is going to be done when we get to heaven, praise God, of course. But I wonder if it isn't something very significant to God when His cherished creation, when His children come to Him in the middle of whatever it is that's going on in their world, uh, pain and darkness and hurt and struggle and incompleteness, when His children come to Him in the middle of that and worship Him in the middle of that. I, I wonder if that isn't the most incredible gift uh, or the the gift that God desires from his children most. There isn't something very significant about worship that comes from or in a time or a place of hurt and pain and struggle and difficulty and, and suffering. And so Jesse encouraged us to do that and he encouraged us to remember that all of those things do not disqualify us from from worship. They may cause us to expand our definition of worship, uh, but they do not disqualify us from worship, from coming into God's presence. Sometimes it seems to me that modern North American Christian culture, we've done a fantastic job of hearing Paul when he says, Rejoice! And again I say rejoice! And, and we've done an amazing job of hearing that and kind of perpetuating that way of thinking to the point where it's almost as if we feel or promote the idea that in in North American Christian culture, we need to always be excited. And we need to always be celebrating. 
And that worship and praise means that our hands are up because they feel like being up. And we're excited and we're worshiping and we're praising God and, and everything is amazing. And if somebody asks you how it's going spiritually, then you need to have some kind of a glamorous report. You need to be able to say something that's gonna, that's gonna be exciting. And if somebody comes and asks me, Darren, how are things going in a church? I need to have an answer that's gonna be, wow, we've got, we've got people coming and we've got new people coming and we're baptizing people and we've got this amazing stuff and I need to give all these glowing reports about how amazing things are. It feels sometimes like if I am a real Christian, then I should be celebrating all the time. And I wonder, is it okay in our culture when someone does not feel like celebrating? When someone is mourning or grieving or lamenting? And I'm not just speaking about personal, you know, funeral times, a personal trial or loss. That too, of course, that's a part of it. Jesse did a good job of, of, of taking us there last Sunday morning. Uh, but what about... What about grieving and mourning and lamenting the prosperity of sin and its consequences and the poverty of goodness and true godliness in our world? Um, is it okay to grieve when we look and we see what our world has come to? Is it okay to mourn when we see that there are 500 million orphans in the world? Is it okay to weep when we see these kids dying of malnutrition and lack of love and care? Is it okay to grieve when we understand that there are 24 million young women selling their bodies as prostitutes in our world? Or what about when you have a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a friend or a co-worker that just, just can't seem to turn the corner? And they're caught in a cycle of loneliness and darkness and and oppression, or what about when you have tried and tried and tried, but you just can't seem to get out from under this cloud of doubt and confusion and, and sometimes outright despair? Is there room in our churches for someone who is lamenting? It's a word we're going to use frequently this morning, so let's stop very briefly and define it. Um, what is lamenting? My dictionary simply said, it is a passionate expression of grief. Sometimes that comes in the form of something tangible, like a poem or a, or a song. It's, it's the expression. It's not the grief. Lamenting is the expression of passionate grief. Or the passionate expression, sorry, of grief. Is it true that we have come to a time in our Christian culture when we think that being spiritual means always being up? It's interesting, actually, uh, in preparing for the PowerPoint presentation, I needed a few pictures, uh, and so I typed in the word praise. Uh, and a host of new relevant pictures pop up immediately, like the one I showed you a few minutes ago. Uh, uh, people... In, in crowds of people with hands up in the air and excitement, I type in the word lament. And almost every picture that comes up is a picture of some ancient painting or, or other artwork or some other culture. 
But it's hard to find a single culturally relevant picture that depicted the act of lamenting. That by itself tells me something about our culture. It tells me that our culture generally sees this as a problem. Lamenting is a problem. It's not culturally relevant. We don't want to do it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to have pictures about it. Oh, and if there was a relevant picture about lamenting, this is what I found interesting also. It was always a picture of one person by themselves. The pictures of praise were almost without fail pictures of a group of people together. But the pictures of lamenting were always pictures of one person by themselves. I found that very telling. We view lamenting as something, if you need to do it, then go do it by yourself. If I need to do it, it's something I'm going to have to do by myself. If I want to praise, oh absolutely, you're, you're invited into this crowd of people that's ready to praise together with you. But where is there a crowd of people that's willing to lament together with you? I wonder if we often forget that lamenting is part of the Bible. Uh, Many of the Old Testament prophets spent hours, days, sometimes years, lamenting. David, a man after God's heart, many of his psalms are expressions of grief and sadness. He is lamenting. Is it okay to be hurting, mourning, grieving? Even being angry or upset at God, complaining to God who doesn't seem to be keeping his promises. All of these are parts of the definition of lamenting. I read an article a while ago of a young woman that was trying to come to grips with the effects of being a victim of gang rape. The article ended this way. She still does not go to church for one simple reason. Churchgoers cannot handle a lament. All the songs are songs of victory and triumph. All the testimonies are stories of victory. Is there room in our Christian culture? Is there room in our church for someone who is in a place where right now they simply cannot identify with victory and celebration? Or do we simply tell these people, that's too bad. Come back when you are feeling up like the rest of us. I'm not going to stand here this morning and say that in this church we do it perfectly, but I do want you to know that here we want to be, we want to be the kind of church As pastors, we want to be the kind of pastor couples that help you to feel welcome and wanted and appreciated and normal while you are in a place where you feel like lamenting and grieving and mourning. I hope that I have not lost you already. I hope that you are not in the process of writing me off as a negative pessimist. In fact, let me just quickly clarify I am not speaking about the harboring of a negative spirit. 
Not at all. That's something completely different. I am not speaking about being in a place where you have decided to live with unforgiveness or bitterness. That's something completely different. I'm not speaking about being a chronic grumbler. I'm not speaking about being somebody who sees the dark side of everything. I'm not speaking about whining about every little thing that is a little different than you would like it to be. I'm not speaking about people who find it appealing to themselves to always see themselves as the victim. No, 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 no. That's not at all what I'm speaking about. We have illustrations in the Bible where people fell into a trap like that, where they grumbled and complained and whined all the time, and God does not deal with them sympathetically. In fact, the Israelites are judged very harshly in Exodus chapter 14, 15, and 16 for the way that they had fallen into a trap of chronic grumbling about everything. Please, please, as I speak this morning, try not to get those two confused. The difference between simply having a negative spirit or godly grief or lamenting. Let me also just say that we will move this morning a little bit beyond the very uh, personal grieving or personal loss. That That is good. And definitely in the same wheelhouse. And like I said, Jesse did a fantastic job of, of kind of opening that up for us last week. Uh, today we want to move a little bit, maybe I can say, to the next ring or to the next layer uh, of grieving and lamenting. So let's let's take a look and see what we find. Did you know that there is an Old Testament book called Lamentations? I'm going to guess it's not part of your regular daily Bible reading. But there's a book in the Old Testament, and if you have your Bibles here today, I would love for you to turn, see if you can find it, the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah. He was often called the weeping prophet, uh, who, by the way, was often accused of only seeing the dark side. And actually, he was persecuted by the people because the people wanted him to prophesy power and wealth. But he couldn't. He couldn't because God had given him a clear picture of the consequences of his nation's sin, and it was his job to proclaim to the people and say, listen up, people, the sin that you are embracing will lead you into gross destruction and moral bankruptcy. Turn around and walk with God. Most of that's written in the book of Jeremiah. Here in Lamentations, I would love it, like I said, if you would go there with me. Here in Lamentations, all of these consequences for their sin that he prophesied about in the book of Jeremiah are in the process of happening. And so here sits Jeremiah and he says, see, I told you so. No, no, actually not. Uh, It's probably in some ways humanly what he might have been tempted to say. Because we are, we all have a little bit of Don Cherry in us. Um, we're tempted to say, I told you so. I predicted. Look at what I said back there. He writes this, he rather grieves and mourns and laments the present state of his people. 
And he writes this lament in the form of a poem. The whole book of Lamentations, actually, in its original form was a poem. It's actually very interesting. Now, I'm going to lose a few of you here for just a moment. Uh, Take a deep breath if you need to. uh, Read something if you need to. But those of you who are kind of into literature, uh, listen up for just a second. Lamentations has five chapters. Chapter 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. Should probably do that the other way around for you guys, right? One and two and four and five. All four of those chapters have 22 verses. And each of those 22 verses begins in succession with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, translating that into English, it would be 26 verses. They had 22. And so, uh, verse one of chapter one begins with A. Verse two of chapter 1 begins with B, verse 3 of chapter 1 begins with C, and so on, all the way down. And so all of chapter 1 is like that, all of chapter 2 is like that, and all of chapter 4 is like that, and all of chapter 5 is that. Literary people, you're still with me? And chapter 5 in the middle, chapter 5 in the middle has 66 verses. Chapter 3, sorry, thank you, thank you for correcting me. That's what I meant to say. Chapter 3 in the middle has 66 verses. I appreciate that. Um, The first three verses start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The next three verses start with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on throughout. And so, even though he is he's expressing, and that's why the word expression is important in the definition of the word um, lamenting. You find a way that fits your character and you passionately express your grief. All right? So for Jeremiah, it was poetry. For another person, it might be the painting of a picture. For another person, it might be something altogether different. For another person, it might be going to the Dominican and helping with house building projects. And another person, it might be speaking out against human trafficking. Whatever, whatever. find a way to passionately express your lament, your grief. The things, the, 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 the things that, that are happening in our world that are so completely different than the way God intended them to be and the things that you are weeping about and grieving about and lamenting. So Jeremiah writes a poem. All right, those of you that, uh, that, uh, that wrote me off there for a minute, come back because we're done with the literature thing. Now we're actually going to talk stuff that I hope connects uh, with all of us. I think Lamentations speaks to what does godly lamenting look like. And so uh, let me read Lamentations chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4. And then we're going to, just to help us, uh, we're going to break it down a little bit. Uh, it somehow it helps us to remember a little bit better if we've got a couple of clear kind of ideas uh, of what godly lamenting to Jeremiah was all about. And I think it translates into our culture. So let me read. This is what a lament sounds like in, in Jeremiah's time. Lamentations 1, 1 to 4. How deserted lies the city. One so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. 
after affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Take note of verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, her maidens grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. I'm going to say um, one little part of godly lamenting is grieving the fact that the road to Zion is empty. The road to Jerusalem is empty. The road to the temple is empty. The road to the altar of God is empty. The people used to be excited about coming to the place of worship. They they were coming from all directions, hordes of them, excited to be together and excited to be going to God's house together to meet with their God in communion with all the others that were coming also. Those roads that were so full of people are now empty. And for Jeremiah, it was something worth weeping about. It it might seem that a literal translation into our culture would perhaps be, you know, the the road to church is empty. The road to church activities is empty. The choice over and over for people to choose social activities and sports activities and leisure activities over church activities, there may be something to say for that. And I I have to confess, I do lament some of that sometimes. But I, I do believe that there is still much more significance uh, in, in, in another little aspect of this that I would like to speak to, I think that a better translation into our culture would be, maybe the phrase that I used uh, a little bit earlier, um, is the road to the altar of God empty? See, back then, for them, it was, everything was an, was a physical expression. And so, when he, when you lamented something, you lamented a physical, uh, uh, deficiency. Something physical that wasn't happening anymore. Uh, for us, I think, as we travel into the New Testament, um, and I've shared this with you over and over, uh, we need to kind of switch a mindset from a physical to a, to a spiritual. And, and when Jesus comes, there, there's that transition. And so, we need to ask a question that's not quite as physical, and so we, we don't want to talk about this Pleasant Valley Road being empty on Sunday morning. We want to talk about something more more spiritual, more heart-related. And so we rather ask a question, something like, um, is the road to the altar of God empty? Is the road to your place of prayer empty? Is the road to your Bible empty? Let me, let me jump on that one just for a moment. Is the road to our Bibles empty? I happen to believe this question is rather crucial. I have pretty good evidence to say that active Bible reading, generally, among Christians, uh, but let me be more personal, among us, is at a low point. I lament that. I I grieve that. Because I believe that the Bible is God's word in whatever form you have it. It doesn't have to be 
this book. It can be your device. Uh, It can come in all kinds of forms. I believe this is God's word. And I believe that he has breathed his life into it. And I don't fully understand it all together with you. But somehow there is life in here. And if the road to these words is empty, I I believe that spells trouble for us. And so I, I grieve that. Jeremiah lamented the fact that the road to God's altar was empty. Jump down a few verses. Verse 8. Still chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Jerusalem has sinned greatly. Jeremiah laments the prevalence of sin. His nation, his people, the group of people that he was a part of, (coughs) excuse me, they had sinned and not committed one sin, but rather were living in sin and were comfortable living in sin. And it hurt him and it grieved him. And so I have to ask, do we grieve the sin that is among us? I'm not speaking about individuals who sin. That should grieve us as well. But, but what about as a church body or, or as a community, the group that we are a part of? I, I grieve when I see people neglected or forgotten or worse yet, intentionally left out. It grieves me when we gossip about people or when we are prejudiced toward others. It grieves me when we are proud and selfish. Does it grieve us that we are not holy yet? Jeremiah grieves the sin of the community, but he doesn't actually stop there. Follow me to verse 20. Still chapter 1, verse 20. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. And so he's not just looking around and pointing fingers at everybody else. He is looking at himself. And he laments and grieves the fact that he too is so far from holy. Yes, yes. Like you, I am absolutely overjoyed at the grace of God. I am overjoyed that in God's eyes, through the death of Jesus on the cross, I am already holy. Hallelujah. But here and now, that's still so far from reality in my life. It grieves me that that my thought life still wants to be dirty. It grieves me that I tend to think critically and negatively of others. It grieves me that I struggle with dishonesty. It grieves me that there is still so much darkness and evil within me. It grieves me that I do not trust God the way that he invites me to. Does sin, your sin, grieve you? Do we still grieve and mourn when we recognize our sin? Or or is it a quick, sorry God, and then forget about it and be on our way until it happens again? Now let me clarify again. We do not need 
to grieve and mourn our sin in order to be forgiven. Please, please, please do not misunderstand me. Your, your grieving and mourning and lamenting will not earn you forgiveness. Absolutely, absolutely not. We do not need to somehow with our grieving and mourning appease a God who is angry at us. And if we grovel in the dirt long enough, then he may finally concede and forgive us. No, 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 no. God forgives long before we even say the words because of his love for us and because of the fact that he has paid the price. I think it's fair to say when we get that, And when we truly love God in return, then the prevalence of sin among us and inside of us causes us to lament and grieve and mourn. I invite you to think about that. Jeremiah also laments, this one's a little close to home, uh, ineffective leadership among the people. Uh, You can see it in in several different places. I'm going to just highlight chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. The ones that were supposed to be warning the people and teaching the people and helping the people to see their sin and deal with their sin and overcome their sin, they failed. And instead, they just gave the people all kinds of fluff. The kind of stuff that they wanted to hear and would make them feel good. And there's no doubt that you can find the same today in many different ways. Well-meaning people following, being led down a garden path toward destruction. Cult leaders, religious leaders. But what about here? In our church, you are an incredibly encouraging group of people. You have supported us and prayed for us and encouraged us far beyond what we deserve. And we sincerely thank you. And when I say us right now, I meant uh, Pearl and me. And as your pastor couple, um, we thank you. And now, more recently, including that, Mike and Alyssa and Jesse and Aaron, we thank you for the support and the encouragement that you give to the leadership here. We are far from perfect, but you bless us over and over and over, and thank you. Thank you for supporting the leadership of this church. But there's a prayer request that comes out of verses like this. A prayer request. Please continue to pray for the leadership of this church. That God would keep our hearts humble and passionately seeking after him. That he would give us wisdom to see things. Courage to challenge things. That we would be faithful in teaching not only the popular messages of our culture, but the entire scripture. That our personal agendas would be set aside and that we would be willing to tackle with God-given wisdom the tough issues as well as the the easier ones. Prayer request, please. For and, uh, and finally, the overriding message of the book of Lamentations um, is Jeremiah lamenting the effects and consequences of sin. The bigger picture 
effects and consequences of sin. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just highlight uh, chapter 4, actually I think chapter 2, sorry, verse 11 and 12. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. Because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city. As their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. I don't know exactly what the situation was like but if in his lament here. But if you allow your imagination to just run with you a little bit when you read when you read this you get a picture not at all unlike the atrocities you see in the news happening in our world from famine to genocide to poverty to slavery to trafficking that is what Jeremiah is lamenting he's watching his people go through <coughs> excuse me this and he and he weeps and he mourns and he grieves and in a way he complains to God God why does it have to be this way he passionately grieves the effects of sin the big picture effects of sin God this doesn't make any sense aren't you in control and if you are in control then why godly lamenting I remember years and years ago I was working in a poorer section of Winnipeg. One thing about working up on roofs is that you often hear and see a lot more than you would like to as you look into backyards and you hear how some of the kids were being treated in this poor, poor neighborhood and, and you see the adults, the adults and the unmotivated and the obviously, you know, living off of, off of uh, social assistance and, and places that were filled with garbage and hopelessness and despair and, and, and I went home and I grieved. Really? Really? This looks so dark. This looks so hopeless. How could anybody ever come out of that? I grieved what sin had done. When we look around, when we experience life from the worst, Jesse's testimony last week, along with famines on the other side of the world and genocide and and then much closer to home, people living on the street and domestic violence and gang violence and drugs and alcohol and crime and the hopelessness and the darkness and the despair. It is good and right to grieve what sin has and is doing. From the big picture all the way down to our own small little worlds. We want to embark on a little adventure together as a church. We want to, in the next few weeks, listen to people tell their stories of loss and hurt and pain. I want to I ask you again to just take out that little insert from your bulletins. It highlights what we want to do in the next couple of weeks. And it's going to be testimonies. It's going to be real people telling real stories to real people, to each other, to us. So beginning this week, Wednesday, take note of the dates. It's not successive Wednesdays. We're meeting this week, Wednesday, and then we're skipping one Wednesday, and then we're meeting two Wednesdays, and then skipping one. So take, take careful note of the dates. It's always Wednesday evenings, but it's, but it's not successive. Four in total, but not successive. I want to tell you that you want to be there. Um, you want to be there maybe because you are in a season 
of loss right now and you want to hear other people's stories of loss and God's faithfulness in that. Uh, Maybe because you are walking alongside somebody right now or maybe because you will be. I don't want to be a doomsday sayer, but you will be walking along someone at some point who is experiencing loss. And so these sessions are intended to help all of us. Those of us in the process of walking through that, those of us walking alongside somebody, those of us that will at some point be either personally or walking alongside someone. Um, Stories that will help us as we think about and walk through loss. So this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, Rosenort Credit Union Basement, you want to be there. That's my little promo, my concluding statement. When you read the entire book of Lamentations, you will see that when we lament in a godly way, in the middle of our grieving and mourning and weeping, even though we can't see it at the moment and we don't understand it and we complain to God that it doesn't make sense, we see a man, Jeremiah, who continues to acknowledge God's power and sovereignty. He examines himself and he continues to beg God to restore all things. Amen. like to close the service by singing song 422 422 trusting jesus every day